0: Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the history of Byzantium. Episode 260, The Fourth Crusade, Part 2. In Part 1, we followed the darkly humorous story of how a pilgrimage to Jerusalem washed up on the shores of the Sea of Marmara. At the heart of this misadventure was the attempt by the Latins to create an empire in the Middle East. The idea that the coast of the Levant could be held securely by volunteers from Western Europe was always a fantastical notion. It was only the miraculous success of the First Crusade that made it a possibility. If Outremere was going to survive, it would need a rich local patron to support it. And only Constantinople or Cairo were candidates for that role. By a series of twists and tortured logic, The men of the Fourth Crusade had ended up at the former rather than the latter. Essentially, the Fourth Crusade came to Byzantium's doorstep asking for the Romans to pay for their fantasies. Ostensibly, they were there to restore Alexius Angelos to the throne, but under the surface a simpler truth was at work. It was Alexius Komnenos who made the idea of a Christian holy land a going concern. Without his money and guidance, that mission would never have succeeded. But having turned a fantasy into reality, the emperor had unwittingly created a monster that would devour his children. The Second and Third Crusades had marched directly to the gates of Constantinople, expecting to be given all the money they could need for their pilgrimage. When the Romans failed to live up to their expectations, they turned violent. Now... The Fourth Crusade was demanding all the treasure the Byzantines had left in order to prevent their latest dream from turning into a nightmare. In Part 1 I really was attracted to the darkly comic aspects of the story. Part 2 is much less funny. But that slightly jovial tone does signal something that I was unaware of before I started researching this story. When the Avars and the Persians besieged Constantinople in 626 AD, it really was an epic struggle between superpowers. And when the Arabs took up the same position a century later, it was a matter of life and death for Roman civilization. When I sat down to read about the Fourth Crusade, I expected to hear a similar tale, a Homeric tussle between two sides locked in mortal combat. But that isn't what I found. Constantinople did not face a fearsome enemy, but a sickly enterprise that could have been beaten away easily in better days. Nor was it a bitter fight to the death. The Byzantine political system just collapsed. As one historian put it, the city fell almost by default. What follows is a sad, sad story of incompetence, misunderstanding and misery. We left off last time with the Latins dropping anchor a few miles south of Constantinople. The passengers aboard those 200 Venetian ships looked in awe at the impressive skyline of the Queen of Cities. Nudging one another, men asked, how on earth are we going to capture such a vast metropolis? The question we need to answer is what had the Byzantines been up to while this storm was gathering? Our emperor, Alexius Angelos Komnenos was busy in both 1201 and 1202, inevitably putting down provincial rebellions. He had no spare time to make specific preparations while the crusade was assembling. But then, why would he? The Latins were planning on sailing directly for Egypt. They weren't going to come near Constantinople. They would, however, sail through Byzantine waters, and Pope Innocent had written to the Vasilevs about this. Innocent wanted supplies to be made ready at Corfu, Crete, and Rhodes, ideally for free, but friendly markets would be acceptable. The Pope was forceful in his letters to the Emperor, making it clear that ideally he wanted church union as well, something that Manuel Komnenos had worked on for many years. The pontiff also hinted that the Romans would suffer the consequences if they blocked the passage of this mission. For his part, Angelos Komnenos was super-friendly, without promising anything tangible. He would certainly make markets available for the Latins, but he wanted reassurance on one thing. He asked Innocent not to lend any support to his nephew, Alexius Angelos, who he knew was canvassing support in Italy. The pontiff replied that he had no intention of doing so. As far as the emperor was concerned then, there was no reason for the Fourth Crusade to come to his capital. It was only when his nephew turned up at Dyrrhachium in April 1203, with the Latins, that the truth became apparent. Messengers would still have taken weeks to reach the Bosphorus, so the Romans only had about a month's warning that the crusade had been turned against them. This was very bad news, as it gave the government so little time to prepare for a siege, When the Latins arrived at Abydos, for example, they found the harvest being helpfully gathered in for them, while, according to Coniates, the capital's defences were in a mess. He says the emperor did go around the land and sea walls, pulling down buildings which had been erected against them, and that he refurbished the 20 ships that now comprised the imperial fleet. But this was all pretty pitiful – He accuses Angelos Komnenos of being lazy, and claims that he'd put his brother-in-law in in charge of the navy, who'd been selling off imperial equipment to make a profit. As we discussed a few episodes ago, Coniates is very unkind to Angelos Komnenos, whose record does not speak of a lazy emperor. But clearly the navy had been run down. Just 18 years earlier, the Byzantines had sent a large fleet to retake Cyprus. So this was not about long-term decline. This was about collapsing tax receipts that accompanied provincial rebellion. The navy was always the first to be defunded. The Romans never kept a big standing navy anyway. They would build fleets up when they needed them. And since the empire had treaties in place with Pisa, Genoa and Venice, naval defence didn't seem to be a priority. As long as the Italians would help defend against Norman attacks, there was no seaborne enemy in sight. Until there was. We have little in the way of detail about the army, either. The Varangian Guard are regularly involved in what follows, and clearly plenty of other troops, native and foreign, were on hand to defend the city. But their poor performance speaks of low morale and political confusion at the capital. Remember that Alexius Angelos Komnenos had been elevated by a senior group of nobles who felt left out of the previous regime. But the emperor couldn't satisfy them all. He had to pick and choose from amongst them as to who would get the top jobs and marry into his immediate family. As we saw with the coup of John the Fat, those left out of the new settlement were not happy and were willing to overthrow the emperor. They were aided in these attempts by the people of Constantinople. The streets of the city were no longer entirely safe for the aristocracy. The pseudo-mob bosses who controlled the guilds and merchants of the capital were not to be trusted. This all left the Vasilevs in a very vulnerable position, confined to his palaces, his tax revenues dwindling, usurpers lurking around every corner. The arrival of a large hostile army put him one wrong move from the grave. Before we continue with the story, it's worth saying that we don't know whether the Venetians and Romans had communicated about the Fourth Crusade. Given the strong links between the sides, it would seem likely that at some point Angelos Komnenos would have sent for the leaders of the Venetian quarter at Constantinople. News must have been trickling in from ships arriving on the Golden Horn. The Doge, Enrico Dandolo, had sent an embassy to the Bosphorus while he was wintering at Zara, but it had been intercepted by enemy shipping, and we don't know if he sent another. It's interesting that he sent one at all. Were his envoys going to warn the Romans of what was coming, perhaps to give them time to raise enough money to pay the Crusaders off? This might have suited the Venetians well. They had no particular interest in Alexius Angelos, and by warning the Byzantines about what was coming, perhaps they could avoid having their privileges taken away if things went south. When the Latins arrived at the capital, Dandolo suggested they anchor off the nearby Prince's Islands, which was a safe distance away, suggesting negotiations might follow. It was Boniface and the others who insisted on a more direct approach. So it's possible that Dandolo was hoping to avoid conflict altogether and just to extort the money he needed from the emperor. That's not how things played out, though, nor does our historian Nikitas Koniatis see things that way. He claims that the Doge held a grudge against the Byzantines because of Manuel's imprisonment of his countrymen 30 years earlier. As I mentioned last time, I don't think it was personal for Enrico, but the imperial point of view was clear. Only the Venetians could have planned and executed an attack on Constantinople, and so it must have been their idea all along. As I just hinted, the Latin leadership were not interested in negotiation. They had convinced their men that restoring Alexius Angelos to the throne was their duty, If they accepted a huge bribe to leave, it would undermine their argument that this was suitable work for men on pilgrimage. So they sailed up the Bosphorus and made camp at Chalcedon directly opposite the capital. Again they found food being piled up in barns for miles around, so no message had been sent out to the provinces to warn them of the impending arrival of an enemy fleet. By early July the crusaders were established on the shore and a representative of the emperor arrived to talk to them. He brought presents for the Latin leaders and offered them more if they would leave. He also made veiled threats about what would happen if they persisted. The westerners were having none of it, though. They told him that they had come to restore Alexius Angelos to the throne and they would not accept any gifts. The more naive amongst the Latins were surprised that no one had come out from the city in support of Alexius Angelos. In order to advertise his presence, the Venetians sailed him up and down the Bosphorus in full view of the sea walls, yelling out his name. A large crowd of Romans lined the walls to watch the spectacle, but there were no cries in his favour. Most of them remained silent, just gawping at the Italian ships. Isaac Angelos had been a popular figure in his day, but he'd been overthrown eight years earlier, and his son had been a fairly anonymous child at the time. So there was no groundswell of support for restoring him, especially as he was being backed by a Latin army threatening to assault the city. The people of Constantinople could tolerate Westerners living amongst them, but they would not accept interference in religion or politics. Having created a corner and backing themselves into it, The Latins felt they had no choice but to attack. On the 5th of July, trumpets blared and drums were beaten as the fleet made the short crossing from Asia to Europe. Amphibious landings are always fraught affairs, and the Emperor had drawn up his army on the opposite bank to oppose them. But the Venetians carried with them cutting-edge military technology. Their horse transports were so vast that the men inside could be fully decked out in their armour and mounted on their horses. When the ships hit the beach, their doors would drop to the sand and Latin knights would come riding out into the action. Despite peppering the armada with arrows, the Roman troops broke and fled at the sight of a Latin cavalry charge, their crossbow bolts bouncing off the armour of the onrushing Frenchmen. Angulos Comninos abandoned his camp to retreat to a safer distance. The crusaders stormed the beaches and quickly established themselves on dry land. Their next target was the Tower of Galata, not the modern one. Galata was by now the commonly used name for the area north of the Golden Horn. We used to call it Sikai. A large tower sat on the shoreline, its strategic purpose was to hold one end of the great chain which blocked the entrance to the Golden Horn. The Latins surrounded it and made camp there that night. Angelos Komnenos tried to catch them unawares. He sent troops across the Horn in darkness to cause panic, but despite initial success, the Latins soon overwhelmed them. Men ran for the safety of the tower, but this was a mistake as the Crusaders closed in on them before they could shut the gates. The tower fell that morning, and with it, the chain guarding the golden horn. If you need a reminder, the golden horn was the inlet of sea to the north of the city, a unique geographical feature which allowed Constantinople to be surrounded on three sides by water. Not only did this make the city more defensible, but the waters of the horn were placid, unlike the churning currents of the Bosphorus and the Sea of Marmara. This made the Horn a superb port, but also the ideal spot to attack the city from, since its calm waters allowed ships to manoeuvre up to the sea walls. Needless to say, no enemy had ever seized the Golden Horn before. The Romans had always kept it locked up tight. The fall of the Tower of Galata was a major tactical breakthrough for the Latins. The following day, the rest of the fleet sailed into the Golden Horn, much to the shock of the inhabitants of Constantinople. The 20 ships of the imperial fleet were quickly smacked aside and the Latins were able to land and make camp on the Galata side of the inlet. We have to stop and ask why the defence of this vital waterway was so anemic. Why didn't the emperor put up a better fight? Why wasn't he prepared to stay put and battle for longer given how important it was? I think the most vital thing to bear in mind throughout this story is that neither side imagined that Constantinople would ever be sacked. This was not like facing the Avars or the Arabs. The enemy were not threatening to wipe you out or enslave you. The Latins were here to back a candidate for the Roman throne. And so events played out like a traditional Byzantine civil war. As we've seen many times, these civil wars were almost like modern elections. The usurping general brings his army to the Theodosian land walls and, quote, campaigns there, hoping that someone inside the city will open the gates for him, essentially electing him, choosing him over the incumbent emperor. If no one did, then these conflicts were usually settled with one battle. And even then, not a bloodthirsty slugfest, but again more like a, a noble competition, a joust. When the going got tough, one side would rout, abandoning their leader, who was forced to accept that he'd been defeated. God had made his judgement, and the loser would offer his neck to the winner, hoping that he would keep his head intact and only lose his eyes. An actual siege of Constantinople was rare because it was so pointless. No besieging army could ever force their way in. So far, my analogy holds. Angelos Komnenos opposed the Crusaders as they landed, but when the going got tough, he fled for the safety of the city. Standing and fighting to the death would be pointless. You don't stand and face down a Latin cavalry charge unless you have to. And if you can hide behind the Theodosian walls, then you don't have to. The emperor saved himself and hoped that the Latins would run out of food before he did. But what about the navy and the golden horn? That changed things, surely. I can already hear some of you asking, what about Greek fire? Why not fill the horn with every ship you can find and burn them all? As I mentioned earlier, the government had let the navy run down, which was incompetent but understandable given the collapse of the tax base. I imagine the expertise needed to operate Greek fire did exist, but it may well have been viewed as a waste of time in the face of a 10-to-1 disparity between the fleets. I also wonder if there may have been a reluctance to act on the part of the Byzantine fleet. Why fight for an emperor who is on his last legs? Why go out to set fire to fellow Christians and almost certainly die doing so when this is just a civil war? There's also an issue that no one addresses in our sources, and that's the role of the merchant fleets who were harboured along the Golden Horn. There were, of course, hundreds of vessels there, many of them Italian. Amalfi, Genoa, Pisa and Venice all had quarters along the Golden Horn. Was there fear that these sailors would turn on the Romans during the fighting? Or were there attempts to recruit them? Most likely these people were just confused and anxious. Some were enemies of the Venetians, some friends. All were Christians who knew that men who'd taken the cross were under papal protection. The capture of the Golden Horn is ultimately what doomed Constantinople, and it's a sombre sight to see it fall so easily. Beyond the incompetence and the poverty of the government, it was also the normality of seeing Latin troops involved in a Roman civil war that allowed it to happen. The Byzantines had been employing Westerners to fight for them for two centuries now it had become so commonplace that they don't seem to have recognised the arrival of a huge Latin fleet as the existential threat that it was. That attitude, that sense that the Westerners were not the real enemy, but merely a tool to be used, has been a consistent theme throughout the Comnenian period. Here, Alexius Angelos Comnenos decided not to risk his army in a pitched battle. He surrendered the north bank of the city instead, hoping that he could defeat the Latins another day. The problem was, of course, that inside the city, the sight of Venetian ships prowling the horn completely undermined the emperor. No god-favoured Vasilevs would allow an enemy fleet into imperial waters. The whispers that maybe he should be overthrown turned into open conversation. The two sides eyeballed one another for the next four days and prepared for another confrontation. The fact that there seemed to be no organic support inside the city for Alexius Angelos did dampen the enthusiasm in the Latin camp, but those who suggested that the crusade could just sail away were shouted down by those who'd sworn oaths to restore the prince to his throne. They were quickly munching through their supplies anyway, it was best to get on with an attack on the city and secure access to the food that way. The Romans had destroyed the Vlachernai bridge that crossed the horn to the north of the city, but the Latids were able to rebuild it within a day and crossed over on the 11th of July. Again, Angelos Komninos failed to do anything about this. With their supplies running low, he could have made life as uncomfortable for the enemy as possible and might have driven them to the negotiating table. But whether it was excess of caution, inexperience, or incompetence, the emperor allowed the crusaders to establish a camp opposite his position. The Vlachernai Palace was in the northwest corner of Constantinople, defended by a very high wall, but not the famous triple walls that covered the rest of the city. This gave the Latins a better chance to break through, and also kept them in close communication with the Venetians, who would attack the sea walls, just round the corner, so to speak. We should probably talk about numbers at this point. The Venetian fleet must have been manned by at least 25,000 men, which sounds impressive, but the vast majority were not soldiers. Tough sailors, yes, but they did not have proper armour or horses. Most had bows or crossbows, and would play a vital role in the siege, but one-on-one against Byzantine soldiers they would not fare well. As for the Latins, they had suffered constant desertions since arriving at Venice – According to our eyewitnesses, they were down to about 700 knights, accompanied by about 3,000 infantry of varying quality. It seems bizarre that such a small force could imagine attacking the walls of Constantinople, but different accounts make similar estimates, so it seems that this was the case. What about the Romans? Some Latin sources exaggerate the numbers at the emperor's disposal, but... One says that they outnumbered the Crusaders three to one. If we assume they literally mean the Latins rather than the Venetians, that would mean the city was garrisoned by about 9,000 soldiers, which sounds plausible. Remember that the Empire had been locked in a paralysing state of civil conflict for a decade now. The resources probably didn't exist to hire the kind of army that Manuel deployed in front of the Second Crusade and the surprise arrival of the Latins also cut down the time the emperor had to call up troops from their posts across the empire. Of these 9,000 or so, it seems that few were experienced heavy cavalry. There were the Varangians, tough Danes or Anglo-Saxons who fought with axes. There was the Byzantine nobility who fought on horseback, but not in the full armour of a cataphract and there were various mercenary cavalry units and lots of infantry. It was a force perfectly capable of defending the city from an assault from the land, but could they defend the city on two sides? Few of these men would ever have faced a naval attack, and the city's sea walls were far less intimidating than those on the landward side. They were literally less high, and obviously were just one line of walls, It was never deemed necessary to build a triple line of walls facing the sea. There was always the population of Constantinople to call upon for extra bodies. The city was a teeming mass of people, several hundred thousand strong. Some must have fled at the first sight of trouble, but this can't have made a dent in the total. Surely some were recruited to help supply the defenders on the walls, but... The emperor may have been wary at this stage of arming people who'd tried to overthrow him three years earlier. It's also worth saying that men from the Pisan quarter did volunteer to fight against their enemies, the Venetians, along their section of the sea walls. The attack began on the 17th of July. Predictably, the Latins at Vlachierne made no progress against the land walls. The Romans pelted them with missiles, and they were forced to withdraw. It was the Venetians who had more success. Initially, they were driven back by the defenders, but the Doge ordered his personal galley to be sailed straight for the walls, so that the rest of his men would understand the need for full commitment at this crucial moment. The Venetians had outfitted dozens of their ships with flying bridges, platforms attached to the masts of their tallest ships. This turned their vessels into siege towers and allowed the men stationed on them to shoot down on the defenders on the walls. This was no easy task since the ships were swaying in the wind and rolling on the waves, but the sheer number of ships involved overwhelmed the defenders and the Italians managed to get their ships close enough to the walls for soldiers to lower themselves onto the battlements. On several towers, the Roman soldiers fled under this assault, allowing the Venetians to capture the battlements and put up flags to signal their success. Meanwhile, the emperor led his army out to crush the Latins. Outnumbering them comfortably, the Romans seemed the likely victors, but for reasons that aren't clear, Angulos Komnenos simply turned his troops around and went back to the city. Coniates calls him a coward, while the Latins claim it was their rigid discipline which intimidated the imperial troops. No source suggests the obvious, which is that news had reached the emperor of the Venetian breakthrough within the city. It's difficult to know the exact order of events. We have access to other sources which imply that Angelos Komnenos did not fully trust the men under his command, many of whom would be aristocrats interested in restoring the emperor's nephew to the throne in order to improve their own position. Whatever exactly happened, the situation inside the city was now alarming. The Venetians had opened a gate in the seawalls and men were pouring into the city, stealing horses and other booty that came to hand. The Vasilevs ordered the Varangian guard to rush to the spot to stop them. The sight of the fierce northmen swinging their axes drove the looting Italians to flight. But as panic spread, some bright spark decided to set fire to several buildings inside the city. The goal was to create a firewall between the towers the Venetians had taken and this Byzantine counter-attack. But the winds which had driven Dandolo's galley onto the beach now spread the fire south into the city. The inferno raged for over a day and eventually destroyed 120 acres of houses, shops and churches. Only the famous hills and cisterns of the city prevented further damage from being done. I've put up a map of the various fires which engulfed Constantinople during this siege at the website and on social media. Alexius Angelos Komnenos marched through the streets to observe the chaos unfolding around him. The fire blazed in multiple directions. Venetian flags flapped in the breeze along the seawalls, and the people were running scared from the flames. Many began to scream abuse at the Vasilevs for allowing this to happen. Understandably, under the circumstances, Alexius decided to abandon Constantinople. It was this act that condemned the emperor in the mind of Nikitas Coniates, amongst many others. There clearly is a case to be made that leaving the city in its hour of need was an act of cowardice unworthy of an emperor. But remember, he did not think he was leaving the city to be sacked. The Venetians were not sending more men through the gates yet. They would wait for tomorrow. Clearly, the emperor was about to be overthrown. His own relatives were plotting against him, planning to hail his nephew as their rightful ruler in order to put a stop to the Latin attack. Angelos Komnenos, in the minds of the Crusaders, was a fratricidal oathbreaker who was fair game for a gruesome death so we can hardly blame him for wanting to avoid that fate. By leaving, he may also have spared the rest of his family from being tainted by his cowardice, since in his absence, he could be safely blamed for all the ills of the city and his relatives quietly sidelined. I know it seems mad that with the enemy literally inside the gates, an emperor could see the situation as better off without him, but the idea that Constantinople would never be sacked was clearly a widespread belief. The city was so vast that even when the Venetians broke through the gates, most people in the city didn't notice. Citizens were still eating and shopping at the other end of the Messi. This was still viewed as a civil war. The Latins were just another mercenary army being used by a Comnenian prince. If Angelos Komnenos had abandoned the city when the Arabs or Avars were around, I'd be condemning him as a selfish traitor. As it is, his actions seem reasonably logical, if sad. I suppose the truly selfless thing would have been to commit suicide, but the morality of that in the minds of Byzantine Christians was not so simple. It's also worth saying that Angelos Komnenos continued to act as emperor when he left the city, hoping to raise an army and return to the capital. Whether that's commendable or not I don't know, but I find it hard to be too harsh given the impossible position he found himself in. The emperor kept most of his family, including his wife, in the dark about his plans. He told only his daughter and close friends. They gathered up a thousand pounds of gold and fled in the night. They headed north to the Black Sea coast, evaded detection and made their way to Adrianople. Alexios Angelos Komnenos was about 50 years old when he left the city and had ruled the empire for eight years. (music) Coniates was furious. Looking back in anger, our historian writes, It was as though he had laboured hard to make a miserable corpse of the city, to bring her utter ruin in defiance of her destiny, and he hastened along her destruction. The Byzantine court woke up the next morning to discover the shocking news. The fire was still burning outside, and the emperor had abandoned them. Well, at least it spared someone the odious task of plucking his eyes out. Naturally, the ruling faction wanted to elevate another of their number, but other voices shouted loudly for the restoration of Isaac Angelos and his son. The man in charge of the imperial treasury a eunuch named Constantine Philozenites, decided to step in. As paymaster for the Varangian guard, he convinced the northmen to arrest the empress and fetch the blind Isaac Angelos to be restored to his throne. Isaac must have been living in fear during the past few weeks. News that his son was at the head of a huge Latin army was exhilarating and terrifying in equal measure. Would his son be killed in the fighting? would he, Isaac, be murdered by his brother in response? This was the first time that a sightless emperor had been restored to the throne, and it's a measure of how low the Romans had fallen that this was considered a good idea. Not that a blind man can't rule wisely, of course, but because in Byzantium his mutilated appearance was a constant reminder that God had already passed judgment on his reign. Isaac and his wife Margaret of Hungary were brought to Vlachernai, and acclaimed by the assembled court. What a strange feeling that must have been for Isaac, now 47 years old, to hear the voices of the men who'd blinded him singing his praises. Naturally, the Vasilefs asked for messengers to be sent to the camp of Boniface of Montferrat to ask for his son to be brought to him. In Boniface's tent, the news was greeted with a huge cheer. Surely, the fighting was over. Alexius Angelos was told to stay where he was for now, though. Instead, a Latin delegation was dispatched to Vlachernai to make sure the terms of the deal Alexius had made were spelt out to the Romans. After being greeted by the assembled court, the delegation were ushered into a private room where Isaac could hear what they had to say. Not for the first time in this story, the look on someone's face when told a staggeringly high number was key to the drama. Isaac winced when the envoys spelt out the promises which his son had made. He must have known that, in their entirety, they were impossible to fulfil. But what choice did he have? He gave his word that he would honour his son's promises and then signed a charter to that effect. The war was over. For now. Prince Alexius Angelos now entered the city. He must have been on an absolute high. How proud would his family be that he had engineered their restoration? Eh. Initially, the mood was joyous. All the leaders of the crusade were invited to a huge banquet at the Vlachionai Palace, where there were speeches thanking them for restoring the angeloi to their rightful place, and men who had been shooting at each other the day before now drank each other's health. You can see in the bonhomie of this scene why no one on either side imagined this to be a real all out war. Over the next week the mood in the crusader camp was as good as it ever would be. They were encouraged to move back across the Golden Horn to avoid appearing like an occupying force, but there they found markets open to them. Gifts and supplies flooded in, and the locals happily fraternised and sold them their wares. The pilgrims' faith was restored. They had supported a God-appointed ruler, and here was the success to prove it. On the 1st of August, St. Peter's Day, chosen to indicate the unity of the church... Alexius Angelos was crowned emperor. It was a happy day. Soon afterwards, the new Vasilefs emptied the treasury into the open hands of his allies. About a 100,000 coins were found, which was a great start. The outstanding balance from the original deal between the Latins and Venetians was settled immediately. Another large payment covered the Venetians for this diversion... And the rest went to the Latin leadership, who were able to pay donatives to their men and settle their personal debts with Dandolo. Lots of people wrote home with glad tidings, and the leadership each wrote to the Pope to justify their actions. Inside Constantinople, though, the mood was quite different. The city was still smouldering from the huge fire which the Venetians had started. Thousands of people were homeless and either had to leave the city or beg for help. The people were not thrilled with their new emperor. Alexius Angelos had brought the Venetians here. He was as responsible as they were for this mess. It didn't help that his tax collectors were busy at work either. Up in the palace, Coniates and other senior officials made it clear that there was no money left. The Romans were 100,000 silver marks short of what they owed, and there was no way of getting it. In desperation, the Angloi began melting down ecclesiastical ornaments. They tried to keep this quiet, but of course, many people found out. And Coniates writes with fury about the sacrilege of it all. It's easy for us to say that the gold adorning Byzantine churches was just precious metal, and surely the priority here was to pay off the Latins. But to the Roman people, this was vandalism that could bring God's judgment down on them. Historian Michael Angold is the most insightful writer about events within Constantinople. He points out that when Angelos Comninos left the city, the people of Constantinople and the elite also went their separate ways. The nobility now spent their time appeasing the Crusaders stripping the Empire of its wealth to feather the Latin nest while the ordinary citizens of the capital stoked a burning hatred of the occupying army who were extorting them. The Latins insisted on demolishing a three hundred foot section of the sea walls to make sure that the Byzantines didn't renege on their promises. Those sailing past could now see directly into the large soot scorched section of the city. It was a standing scar on the landscape, reminding everyone that this conflict was not finished yet. After a few weeks on the throne, Alexius Angelos returned to Boniface's tent. The new Vasilefs had become friends with the Marquis and his men over the past year, and he now confessed to his patron that he feared he would be murdered if the Latins ever left. The people did not love him, while the elites hid their disgust behind their sycophancy. After all, he'd brought a foreign army to their doorstep and was slowly bleeding them dry. The deadline of the 30th of September was now approaching, at which point many of the pilgrims would be free of their obligations and could leave. Angelos told the crusade leaders that he would not be able to pay them all he owed by then. He offered them more money that he didn't have to stay for the winter. He argued that the reason he wasn't raising enough money was that his uncle had set up shop at Adrianople and was collecting the revenues of Thrace there. If the Latins stayed around and helped him recover those cities, then he'd find the money to settle his debts. The leadership were sympathetic to his situation and, crucially, Enrico Dandolo felt that he was in a similar bind. The Doge knew that Alexius was right, that the young emperor would be overthrown if the Latins left, as would the Venetian colony on the Golden Horn. Surely, in the wake of the humiliation which the Crusaders had inflicted on Byzantium, a new emperor would imitate Andronicus and set the people loose on the Italian trading quarters, taking revenge on the innocent people living there. The treaty between Venice and Byzantium, patiently negotiated over the decades, would be torn up. What if, Dandolo may have thought, he then failed to take Egypt as well? What if the Venetian fleet was lost at sea? The Doge would have single-handedly destroyed Venice's entire economic position in one fell swoop. He nodded sadly at the thought. The Latins agreed that they must stay at Constantinople for the rest of the winter. The emperor promised another 100,000 coins to cover their expenses. As you can imagine, the rank-and-file pilgrims were not happy at yet another delay. But again, they had little choice in the matter. The Venetian fleet were their only means of escape, and with winter approaching, it did make sense to stay here, with the Romans footing the bill and head for the Holy Land next spring. Doubtless, some threw up their hands and found ways to escape, but the bulk took lodgings in Galata and hunkered down. Deal done, Alexius and Boniface led an army north into Thrace, leaving Baldwin, Louis and Dandolo behind to watch over the city. As soon as the Emperor was over the horizon, trouble broke out. As many had predicted, the people of Constantinople began to take out their frustrations on the Latin residents of their city. A series of attacks saw people killed and their homes and workplaces destroyed. It was all terribly sad. Coniates says that the small community from Amalfi were indistinguishable from their Roman neighbours by this point, but were targeted anyway. While the Pisans who just fought against the Venetians during the siege of the city, found that that was no protection against the mob. Many Latins fled across the Golden Horn to seek solace with their brethren. In retaliation, some crusaders decided to cross the waters and ransack the Muslim trading quarter along the Golden Horn. People from Syria and Egypt had long had their own trading posts in this area of the city, and the sight of their mosque across the water was seen as a provocation by men who'd been stirred to pilgrimage by anti-Islamic rhetoric. The Latins landed and began looting. The screams of those inside alerted the local Byzantine merchants who ran to the defence of their Muslim neighbours. Nasty fighting took place along the shore. These Latin raiders, who were acting in defiance of their leader's orders, decided to set fire to various Byzantine buildings along the shore, either in retaliation or to help cover their retreat. Whatever the motives of the arsonists, they could not have known the damage they were about to unleash. Once more a strong wind blew south, pushing the flames into the dense rows of wooden stalls and houses which made up the trading quarters of the Golden Horn. The fire exploded into life, consuming whole streets in a matter of hours. Both sides watched in horror as the inferno gained strength and darted in multiple directions. The wind began to push it on a winding course across the centre of the city. I don't think I can improve on this paragraph from historian Jonathan Phillips. Smoke billowed into the sky as the flames leapt from building to building. Screams of the trapped and dying pierced the air, the crackle of burning wood, the abrasive rattle of disintegrating stonework, the percussive thud of falling masonry, pierced by the sharper staccato crack of shattering roof tiles, all generated a truly hellish noise. For three days the blaze meandered through ancient palaces and crowded tenements. Churches exploded in flame as the authorities watched on helplessly. The Forum of Constantine was engulfed in flame. The ancient senatorial and ecclesiastical buildings surrounding it were reduced to ash. The Arch of the Milion, from which all distances were measured, was burnt, and the Hippodrome's outer walls were damaged. There was serious concern that the Hagia Sophia was going to be next, but the wind changed direction, and the inferno headed south towards the sea, engulfing the harbour of Theodosius before finally beginning to subside. Water from the cisterns and aqueducts put out the remainder of the blaze, but the heart of Constantinople had been gutted. Check the map if you want to see the area of damage. Around 450 acres of the city had been destroyed and rendered uninhabitable. Coniati's laments that fires were a regular feature of city life, but that this one proved all the others to be but sparks. One study compares the damage to the famous fire of London in 1666, where a similar amount of real estate went up in smoke. London lost 87 churches, 13,000 houses and over 400 streets in that fire the numbers may have been similar in Constantinople. Though the Byzantine capital was also home to large monasteries and palaces full of treasures. Ancient artworks, relics and manuscripts all gone forever. Estimates suggest that a 100,000 people may have been made homeless. Taken together with the earlier fire in the northwest of the city, the Latins had scorched one-sixth of its total area. It's amazing that neither Coniates nor the Latin writers really mention the thousands of people who must have been turned into refugees overnight. The columns of people abandoning the city, or those left behind trying to mend broken lives. Many had to live in tents amidst the rubble, begging for help, their lives destroyed. It must have been a pitiful sight. Coniates is always dismissive of the common people as a political entity, and though he laments the mutilation of the city itself, he doesn't dwell on the masses. More than the eventual sack of the city, this fire destroyed the grandeur of Constantinople. Of course, large parts of the city remained untouched, but no one would rebuild the centre on the scale which had existed before, nor would the city's population recover to its previous height until Ottoman times. There was no question who was responsible for the fire. If you were of Latin descent, it was no longer safe to be seen on the streets. About 15,000 people migrated across the Golden Horn to join the Crusaders in Galata. The two sides now faced each other down with increasing hatred. In view of this tremendous damage, I wonder if Alexius Angelos could have negotiated a reduction in what he owed the Crusaders. Perhaps he did, but he didn't seem to affect the course of events. The emperor was not having a great time out in Thrace. His uncle left Adrianople as soon as he heard his nephew was on the way. So Alexius and Boniface were able to enter various cities and collect some taxes. But a bit of the treasure had gone with Angelos Komnenos, And of course Thrace was not able to pay off Alexius' debts on its own. This was the land that had been continuously raided by the Bulgarians for the past decade. At one point a group of senior Latins left in a huff when Alexius failed to pay them what they thought they were owed. The Vasilevs returned to the capital in November 1203, deeply anxious about how he was going to pay his allies. And that was before he saw the state of the city. The mood was filthy. After the shock of the fire... The Romans had rebuilt the section of the seawalls that had been pulled down. The people and court were agitating for Alexius to break ties with the Latins. But even if he could get rid of them, he would still be a hated figure in their absence. Angelos had to keep them around until he could secure his position. So he went back to confiscating wealth from his enemies and the church. But with each passing day, the pressure grew. As winter began to bite, the crusaders assaulted the countryside. They considered it their right to rob suburban monasteries and mansions now that the regular payments from the emperor had begun to dry up. Bands of young men from the capital would arm themselves and go out to try and defend the local people. They exhorted Alexius to join them, but of course he couldn't. Alexius was being pulled in different directions. He would often socialise in Boniface's camp, but the Byzantine court were urging him to end his visits. An oration survives from the 6th of January 1204, given at the Vlachionai Palace, praising the emperor. But within its flowery compliments, the poet cajoled the emperor to discipline the Latins. Let them not grow wanton, but because they, restoring the Lord Emperor, have fulfilled servants' roles... Let them be bent to servile laws. Within the forms and manners of an ancient Roman tradition, we get a real glimpse here into the calcified ideology of the imperial court. They were at this point virtually holed up in the palace, an island of peace and prosperity, caught between the burnt-out husk of their city and an enemy army, and yet they refused to truly appreciate the predicament they were in. How exactly could Alexius bend the Latins to his will? The Venetians still controlled the golden horn, and the Byzantine elite didn't seem to realise how determined Dandolo was to both collect his debts and protect his trading position at the capital. By this point, Alexius had simply stopped paying his allies. There was little else he could do to raise money. He begged Boniface to be patient and give him more time, but when the emperor failed to stop local Byzantines from launching attacks on the Latin camp, it seemed clear that there had been a permanent change in relations. The crusade leadership sent a delegation to Vlachernai to clarify the situation. In front of the entire court, the envoys demanded that the emperor fulfil his sworn obligations or face the consequences. In a barbed comment about perceived Byzantine treachery, the speech ended with the line, For we have never acted treacherously. That is not the custom of our country. It was a laughable statement, given how the Fourth Crusade had reached this point, but it remained the Latin contention that it was the Byzantines who broke their agreements. Naturally, it caused uproar in the room. The Roman court was used to hearing deeply respectful entreaties to God's Vice-Regent. This barely veiled threat was considered offensive. The envoys escaped unscathed, but war was one step closer to resuming. Enrico Dandolo asked for a personal audience with Alexius shortly afterwards. The two met on the shore of the Golden Horn, but couldn't reach an agreement. The doge supposedly said, Wretched boy, we dragged you out of the filth and into the filth we will cast you again. It was difficult for the Latins to believe that Constantinople was out of money. None of them had ever seen a city so large and so wealthy. When they eventually sack the city, they will of course extract more cash from its buildings than Alexius Angelos had promised them. They did this by melting down ancient statues and pulling apart church furnishings that were lined with precious metals. I know some of you will wonder why the Romans didn't dig deeper to find the money they needed to get rid of the Latins. But I hope you can appreciate that some things are worth more than the materials they are made from. The sacrilege of looting churches, the tragedy of destroying priceless works of art, the breaking of laws and relationships that would be required to empty private homes of their wealth. At some point you have to ask yourself, what price am I really paying? What price my dignity? What value do we put on our civilization? Open hostilities now broke out. Without the regular payments from Alexius, the Latins could no longer easily afford food. They began to forage deeper and deeper into the countryside. Units of Byzantine soldiers and volunteers would attempt to ambush them. Knowing that he still depended on their goodwill to survive, Alexius refused to join in. The military men at court were in a bind, some wanting to join in the fight, some staying loyal to the emperor, all looking around to see who would be the first to challenge the Vasilevs and try to seize the throne for himself. On the 1st of January 1204, someone gave the order to make an attack on the Venetian fleet. If their ships could be crippled, then the Latin host would be forced to surrender. But it was not a concerted attack, Just 17 ships were filled with kindling, satellite and shoved towards the Italians. The Venetians were wise to these tactics. They had posted lookouts and leapt into action when they saw the crewless ships ablaze. A deadly collision was averted, but it was a close shave. It prompted the Latin leadership to make preparations for another assault on the city. What other choice did they have? If they lost their fleet, they would all be trapped here at the mercy of the Romans. The most prominent anti-Latin courtier was a man named Alexius, of course. This was Alexius Ducas. He had a bushy unibrow, which earned him the nickname Morzudflos. So for obvious reasons, that's what I'll call him from now on. Morsouflos was a political opponent of the previous regime and had been released from prison when Alexius Angelos took power. He'd become a staunch ally of Alexius's and now volunteered to take the field against the Latins. The emperor had officially forbidden such actions and it's a clear sign of his waning authority that Morsouflos was able to take the field. In the action that followed, the Roman unit was driven back by Boniface's men – but the people were cheered by news that one of their lazy overlords was finally being proactive. This was enough praise to convince Motsufloss to try and overthrow the emperor himself. The people of Constantinople had already had enough. By late January, with war looming, they gathered in the Ahia Sophia, intent on elevating their own candidate as they had done with Isaac Angelos 20 years earlier. But in another darkly comic moment, they couldn't find anyone willing to take the job. Nikitas Coniates and other officials from the great palace were present, and they told the mob that if they hailed a new emperor, it would push Alexius Angelos and the crusaders back together. Latin troops would protect their man and kill the new Vasilevs. After three days of debate, the crowds insisted and a young nobleman named Nicholas Canavos was elevated to the purple. Isolated at Vlachernai, Alexius Angelos did just as Coniates predicted, and contacted Boniface asking for help. He offered to allow the Latins to garrison the palace if they would defend him. An extraordinary submission. Angelos was essentially giving up Byzantine sovereignty to save his own skin. The letters carrying this exchange were transported to the Latins by Maudsouflos, who the emperor, unfortunately, trusted. With Angelos strongly considering opening the gates to Boniface's troops, Maudsouflos acted to unseat him. With everyone terrified that the mob were going to break into the palace, it didn't take much imagination for Maudsouflos to conjure up a plot. He convinced Constantine Philosiniti's the eunuch in charge of the treasury, to join him. He convinced the Varangians to switch sides, and the trap was set. Maudsouflos rushed to the emperor's bedroom in the small hours of the 28th of January and told him that the mob were at the gates. He rushed the sleepy Vasilevs out to the safe embrace of the Varangians, who put him in chains and led him off to prison. Alexius Angelos was 22 years old, and had been emperor for just over five months. I hope it was worth it. Mordsuflos quickly put on the imperial regalia and had himself hailed as emperor by those present. Later that day he arrived at the Ahir Sophia, promising to rid the city of the Latins. The clergy crowned him, and the people seemed relieved that finally someone from their worthless elite was taking a stand. Nicholas Canavos was abandoned and handed over to the new Vasilevs. The blind Isaac Angelos was also led, sadly, back to his confinement. Within a month, all three fallen emperors were dead. Alexios V, Dukas, now took command of the city. The name Dukas implies he was part of the extended Komnenian clan and may have been a descendant of Alexios Komnenos, but we don't know much about his background. He seems to have been in his 50s, though this is largely a guess based on the words Coniates uses to describe him. Our historian calls him clever, arrogant and deceitful, but in the next sentence describes how one of his first actions was to fire Coniates, so it's hard to know what he was really like. The new Vasilev sent word to the crusaders that they had a week to leave, or he would make them. It was what he needed to say to justify his elevation to the people, but it had the effect of removing all doubt in the minds of the Latins about what they should do next. It was the middle of winter. There was no way the Crusaders could sail safely in this weather, nor could they feed the entire host now that Constantinople had shut its gates. They would have to attack the city in order to survive. Maud gave the leaders all the moral cover they needed to again assault a Christian city. After all, the new emperor was a caricature of the treacherous Byzantine who'd overthrown his rightful lord. Remember that the Latins were all bound to one another by serious oaths of loyalty. Kings in Western Europe were rarely toppled. Byzantine politics looked to them like a godless viper's nest. Mordzufloss got to work immediately. He confiscated wealth from the rich who remained, including Coniates, and began strengthening the city's defences. Siege weapons were dragged to the top of the seawalls, and the soldiers were made ready for war. Mordsouflos also began to lead sorties out to harass the Latins. Coniates, no fan of the new emperor, concedes that, at last, someone was bravely taking up arms. According to the Western sources, Mordsouflos hung some Latins he'd captured from the land walls and set them on fire. Hunger began to gnaw at the Latins as they began preparations for another siege of the city. The price of food skyrocketed, and knights began setting guards to watch over their horses. To remedy this, the Latins sent men to capture a fort on the Black Sea coast in order to gather supplies. Mortsouflos rode out to try and prevent them from bringing their carts back to camp, but the Latin cavalry were too tough and drove the emperor away. In the rout, the Vasilevs dropped an icon of the Virgin Mary, which he'd carried with him for protection. It was a symbolic moment for both sides as the final battle loomed. The Latins paraded the icon in front of the walls to humiliate Mortsuflos, who responded with another attempt to launch fireships at the Latins. But when this too failed, the Emperor began to get nervous. Defeating the Latins was not as easy as he'd hoped it might be. He changed tack and sent word to Enrico Dandolo that he would like a meeting. This was interpreted as a sign of weakness, and when the two met, Dandolo offered no terms under which the Latins would leave the area. In fact, the doge insisted that the rightful emperor, Alexius Angelos, should be released from his confinement immediately. When Mortsufloss laughed this off, Dandolo's men tried to capture the emperor. Ducas bolted his horse back to safety and immediately gave the order for Angelos to be strangled in his cell. On the morning of the 9th of February, it was announced that, tragically, young Alexius had died of natural causes. Motsuvlos really committed to the lie, even holding a state funeral and publicly mourning, but few were buying it. The last potential obstacle for the Crusaders had been removed. They were now able, in their minds, to capture Constantinople in good conscience. And more than that, to take over the Roman Empire itself. For a long time I struggled to fully understand this decision. After all, why would any of these men want the hassle of taking over Byzantium? Why wouldn't they just sack the city, secure the supplies they needed, and then move on to Egypt? I now understand that the key factor for the Venetians was their trading position within the Byzantine Empire. Dandolo could not afford to allow a native emperor to be put in power. A new Roman ruler would take revenge on them and would find willing accomplices in the Pisans and Genoese. But what about the Latins? Why did Boniface and Baldwin and the rest care about dividing up the empire? Obviously there is ambition and greed to think about, but I think they recognised that they were never going to make it to Egypt. Not with this army. Their numbers had dwindled to the point where they would be annihilated on the Nile. But they were very committed to leading a glorious crusade. And so the capture of the Roman Empire for the papacy became their new cause they would each gain lucrative lordships and would impose catholic unity on this part of the world hopefully that would win the pope's favor and they could then use these new resources to help ultramare these debates and discussions took a few weeks to sort through naturally the venetians did the hard administrative work of devising solutions on how best to divide up roman territory After all, they knew the empire intimately, whereas to the Latins, it was all just foreign soil. I'll discuss this in more detail in the future, but the main points were that the whole crusade would stay together for another year in order to secure their hold over the empire. Once Constantinople had fallen, all the spoils were to be divided equally between the two sides, that is, after the Venetians were paid in full for their services, then a new emperor would be elected by a committee of six wise men. And if a Latin emperor were chosen, then the Venetians would elect a patriarch, and vice versa. Another committee would then divide the empire into fiefs and assign them to those present. Crucially for the Venetians, no citizen of a state at war with Venice would be admitted into the empire. This would allow Dandolo to shut the door on the Pisans and Genoese and potentially create a monopoly on trade all the way from the Grand Canal to Cyprus. Meanwhile, the priests present went around the army and explained that by murdering his king, Mortsouflos was an enemy of the faith and was causing a schism with Rome. The pope had, of course, written to the leaders of the crusade forbidding them from attacking Constantinople But again this was suppressed, and some priests knowingly lied about this to the rank and file. Instead, they promised them that absolution for sin would certainly be granted to anyone who died scaling the walls of the Roman capital. The agreement was signed in early March, and preparations began in earnest to capture Constantinople. The attack didn't begin until well into April, which means Motsufloss had a couple of months in which to try and disrupt their preparations, but we hear nothing about that, which suggests that, like Angelos Komnenos before him, he felt he had more to lose by trying to stop them than he did by hiding behind the walls. As Michael Angold argues, this is about political collapse more than Constantinople lacking the resources to fight. If the Romans truly understood that their city was about to be sacked, surely Mordesuvlos would have led a volunteer army of thousands of men ready to die for him. But instead the people were seen as a threat, just as the aristocratic soldiers that he could have called upon were viewed as rivals for power. The Romans were weak and divided, while the Latins were united in purpose. Their mission may have been a self-serving, largely political farce of a pilgrimage, built on lies and drenched in sin, but it was more effective than the broken Byzantine political system. As the two sides gathered for a final showdown, it was morale which decided the contest. The Latins knew that the only way to survive and save their souls was to make it over those walls. Whereas every Byzantine had doubt in his mind, Doubt that the man commanding them was their rightful ruler. Doubt about whether those around them would really fight to the death to save the city. Maybe even doubt that a Latin takeover would be the worst thing in the world at this point. At least it would put an end to the war. The attack began on the 9th of April entirely along the sea walls from the Palace of L'Hernay running south towards the centre of the city. The Venetians reinforced their flying bridges with vinegar-soaked hides to absorb the impact of Byzantine artillery and prevent them catching fire, while the Byzantines had erected wooden towers on top of the sea walls in an attempt not to be overwhelmed by the height of the Venetian ships. The Latins launched themselves at the shore, dragging battering rams up to the walls while the Venetians pelted the battlements above. The Byzantines gave as good as they got, hurling stones and debris back at the enemy. As Jonathan Phillips points out, thanks to the horrendous fires the cities had suffered, the Byzantines had no shortage of rubble to hand. The wind was with the Romans that day and pushed the enemy ships away from the shore, taking a steady stream of casualties the Latins eventually withdrew. It was a major victory for Mortsouflos, who had set up camp on a nearby hill so he could direct the defence. One of our Latin eyewitnesses says the Romans all cheered as the Latins ran for their ships, and many turned around and exposed their backsides to their fleeing adversaries. In desperation, some of the rank-and-file Latins asked again if they could just leave for the Holy Land, but the leaders were determined to try again in a few days' time. The priests were sent round to assure the troops of the justness of their cause— And from eyewitness accounts we know that they used rhetoric usually reserved for Muslims to stir the pilgrims into action, describing the Byzantines as dogs and heathens. The clergy also ejected all the prostitutes from the camp to purify the army before their next attempt to slaughter their way to absolution. The Venetians tweaked their technological tactics. They had seen that even their flying bridges were now insufficient against the jerry-rigged wooden towers which Mortsufloss had erected on the seawalls. So the Italians began lashing two ships together so that the flying bridges up on their masts would now provide double the firepower. And in theory, if they could angle things correctly, the two bridges might even be able to surround a single tower, embracing it between the two platforms, allowing soldiers to make the difficult jump. Onto the battlements. The Latins made their second attempt three days later, on the morning of Monday, the 12th of April, 1204 AD. The Venetian fleet sailed to the same spot in the northwest corner of the city, dropped anchor, and began bombarding the walls. The Byzantines returned fire, and it was a familiar stalemate until around midday. Then divine intervention settled the contest. The wind picked up, pushing south this time. With the Venetian sails suddenly swollen by the breeze, Dandolo gave the order for the anchors to be pulled up and an attempt made on the walls. Under heavy fire, two Venetian ships, the Paradise and the Lady Pilgrim, bound together, drove straight into one of the towers. The flying bridges nestling either side of Motsuflos's wooden construction. The Latin troops prepared to jump, and again I can't improve on Jonathan Phillips's prose. Dressed in full armour, balanced high on the ladders at least 95 feet above the Lady Pilgrim's deck, swaying backwards and forwards on the swell, they had to line themselves up with a gap in the battlements or the top of the tower. At this moment, there was no way to secure the vessel to the fortifications. The knights had to judge the movement of the waves and then time their jump to perfection or else plummet to their deaths below. As if this were not enough, they also had to face the heavily armed warriors who defended the city. Men began to make the leap and were cut to pieces by the Byzantine troops waiting for them, but those in heavy armour could not be easily dispatched and once a few brave souls had established themselves on the towers, their companions were able to join them and push the Romans back. Morale amongst the defenders remained low, and rather than stand and fight, many Byzantines fled down their towers to safer ground. This allowed the Latins to tie their ships to the tower and raise a flag to encourage the rest of the fleet. Another tower was taken, and with the Byzantines focusing their energy on this section, a group of Latin knights went unnoticed as they smashed through a postern gate that had been walled up before the battle. Shocked by this breakthrough, the Roman troops nearby broke and fled. Soon more and more Western troops rushed across the slim beach and broke through this opening. When news reached Motsuflos, he made a final attempt to rally the soldiers to his side, but when they saw Latin cavalry charging towards them, Many turned and looked to their own safety. The emperor abandoned his position and headed for the great palace. He called out to the people along the Messi to join him and make a last stand, but no one would. He quickly gave up the attempt, headed into the palace, and with a few friends and family, sailed away across the Bosphorus. Alexius V Ducas was emperor for just two and a half months, and though I can hardly blame him for running any more than I did Angelos Komnenos, I have less sympathy for him in general. He provoked the Latins into war, but then failed to follow through with the kind of desperate guerrilla campaign that was needed to save the city. The Latins now poured in through the breach and began hacking at anything that moved. The pent-up frustrations of three years of painful sacrifice and compromise were unleashed on the poor Byzantines of the northwest corner of the city. Many Romans fled for the Golden Gate and out into Thrace, while most of the aristocracy headed in the same direction from the Vlachernai Palace. The rest of the population huddled for safety in what remained of the city. Evening was quickly approaching, and so the crusade leaders tried to restore some discipline. They rallied everyone to the burnt area of land near the sea walls. Remember, Constantinople was so vast that it couldn't be taken in a few hours, so the Latins built a full military camp within the city, in anticipation of having to fight their way to the Hagia Sophia the next morning. Amidst the rubble of the burnt-out centre of the city, determined street fighting could have done the Latins serious harm. Paranoid about being attacked in the night, some Germans set fire to more buildings to prevent the Romans from reaching them. This blaze swept along the trading quarters on the Golden Horn and simmered for over a day, dying out when it reached the areas which the major fire of the previous July had already reduced to ash. Down at the Hagia Sophia, people had gathered to elect a new emperor. Yes, there were still those who couldn't see the writing on the wall and expected someone to step forward to save the city. Two of the remaining nobles offered to lead a last stand, Constantine Lascaris and Constantine Ducas. To avoid needless squabbling, they drew lots to decide who would emerge victorious. Lascaris was the winner. Under the circumstances, he refused to be hailed as Vassilefs, but was willing to lead the empire's remaining forces in battle. The only troops who could realistically stand tall against the Latin knights were the Varangian guard. The northmen demanded a massive pay increase in order to go through with it. Lascaris spent the night urging the civilians remaining to fight with him, but the next morning when the sun rose, few came forward. Even the Varangians began to desert when they caught sight of the Latins gathering in formation at the other end of the city. Lascaris himself then gave up and fled. A population as large as Constantinople's could, in theory, have overwhelmed the Latin host. But if no leader was willing to stay and fight, then why should the people? the roman political system had just dissolved as michael angold put it the city fell almost by default despite the political class melting away those in authority still could not conceive of a world where the roman order did not exist and still did not view the latins as a true enemy The crusaders, lined up in battle array, waited patiently for the Byzantines to come and face them, but soon realised that no one was coming, or at least no one armed. A procession arrived peopled by the clergy of the city. The priests, in their finery, carried crosses and icons. They were attempting to show their conquerors such honour that they might save the rest of the city from the sack. Some of the Varangian guard followed behind them, hoping to find a new employer. The leading clergyman approached Boniface of Montferrat. Given that both of his brothers had held the rank of Caesar, it was only natural to see him, the leader of the crusade, as the new emperor. Perhaps he would accept their acclamations and save his city. But once the surrender was formally accepted, The Crusaders pushed the clergy aside and sprinted in every direction. The wealthiest city in the known world was wide open, and it was time to get rich. The sack of Constantinople had begun. As the mass of pilgrims and Venetians began kicking in doors, their leaders moved quickly to secure the two palaces. Boniface rode down to the great palace, and was allowed in on condition that he didn't harm any of the nobles and bureaucrats who were sheltering inside. He kept his word, and found rich treasures waiting for him in the chapels and storehouses within. Meanwhile, Henry of Flanders made his way to vlachernai and was offered a similar deal. The wealth of the Comnenoi was now in Latin hands. Across the rest of the city, mansions and palaces were picked clean, Churches were ripped to shreds and eventually the ancient metal statues which decorated the hippodrome and public squares, some of them over a thousand years old, were tossed into furnaces in order to mint coins. The sack of the city is an episode in itself and so I will pull the camera away from this sad scene and we'll discuss it in detail next time. Contrary, to what you may have heard, though, the sack of the city was actually a somewhat restrained affair. Of course there was killing and brutality, I'm sure, but by the standards of medieval warfare, it was tame stuff. What the Latins did do, though, was to systematically strip the city of all its movable wealth. The loss of all that precious metal is what brought an end to the Roman Empire as any kind of power on the world stage. In times of real crisis, Heraclius or Alexius Komnenos had been able to turn to the stores of treasure present in their city and find the money needed to turn things around. Without the accumulated wealth of a millennia of empire, the Romans became just another small kingdom. Coniates remained in the city during the occupation and laments at length about what was being lost. O city, city, eye of all cities, universal boast, supramundane wonder, wet nurse of churches, leader of the faith, guide of orthodoxy, beloved topic of orations, the abode of every good thing, O city, that hast drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. O city, consumed by a fire far more drastic than the fire which of old fell upon the Pentapolis. What shall I testify to thee? What shall I compare to thee? The cup of thy destruction is magnified. He was well aware that what had happened was the fault of the Romans as much as the Latins. O prolific city, once garbed in royal silk and purple, and now filthy and squalid and heir to many evils, having need of true children. Not that he spared the Latins his rhetorical fury. In truth, they were exposed as frauds. Seeking to avenge the holy sepulchre, they raged openly against Christ, and sinned by overturning the cross with the cross they bore on their backs, not even shuddering to trample on it for the sake of a little gold and silver. By grasping pearls, they rejected Christ, the pearl of great price, scattering among the most accursed of brutes, the all-hallowed one. He casts Constantinople as the mother of the Roman people. When shall the time come for thee to gather thy children from the four winds to which we have scattered, even as hens which love their chicks gather them under their wings? And now we cannot freely gaze upon thee face to face, nor joyously cling to thee as to a mother, and openly pour out for thee a libation of tears, as many as the eyes wish or can, but flying cautiously around thee like sparrows, whose mother and source of nourishment has been taken captive, and whose nest has been scattered to the winds. We emit piteous and mournful cries, expelled far from thy nesting places, hungry and thirsty, shivering in squalor, often close shorn because of lice, our souls wasting away because of our afflictions. We are no longer able to find the way back to our homes in the city, but roam far and wide like fickle migratory birds. Coniates would soon be forced to search for a new home, a story we will pick up next week. His lament is full of political rhetoric, but the sentiment is undoubtedly real. The fall of Constantinople was a tragedy, a desperate tragedy for the Roman people. The heart of their civilization had gone up in flames. It wasn't just the loss of great works of art or precious manuscripts, it was the revelation that God did not support them anymore. Often on this podcast I'm so keen to pull back the superstitious elements that have crept into the histories that I don't emphasize the importance of the supernatural to people's worldview. Constantinople had never been sacked. Enemy troops had never set foot on its streets. For over 800 years, it had stood as the greatest city in the Mediterranean world. Only the love of the divine could explain such an astonishing record. That record proclaimed other truths to the world, that the relics which the city housed really did have power and that the men who ruled that city must have been guided by God. Now the tombs of those men, Basil, Justinian, Constantine, were thrown open and ransacked by lowly foreigners. Those churches whose reliquaries and tombs had been so venerated were torn to pieces in search of a few stray coins. Coniates and thousands of others like him looked on with despair. Their whole way of life had been destroyed. The psychological and spiritual assumptions they had grown up with had been fatally undermined. In a world so full of uncertainty, where death and disease could appear without warning, where storms could destroy years of hard work in one night, belief and faith were vital. Constantinople had stood for something very important. It had stood as reassurance that God watched over the Romans and offered them protection against the forces of darkness. Now that reassurance was gone. I know some of you have threatened to stop listening at this point, but if you really are invested in the Roman story, I think you should come back to find out how they put the pieces back together again. To me, it's all the more exciting that I don't know much about what's coming between now and 1453. I want to see the Romans stand on their own and see how they rise once more from the ashes. I'm certainly looking forward to the humbling of the Latins, which, believe me, is coming soon. I think this next period of history is going to be fascinating, and I hope you will join me in learning all about it. As for the fall of Constantinople... As sad a story as it is, it's also quite anticlimactic. It would have felt more satisfying, in a way, if the Crusaders had brought a 100,000 men to the city and burnt it to the ground. A horrible thought, yes, but a clear explanation for the fall of a mighty empire. We would have to conclude that the population growth in Western Europe had overwhelmed the civilizations of the Mediterranean. And although that is still, sort of, the conclusion we draw, it's clear from this story that it didn't have to play out this way. The Romans really could have avoided this fate. If the Crusaders had sailed on by and captured Egypt, then history would be quite different. Instead, a small Latin army was able to succeed where giant Arab and Avar enemies had failed. The collapse of the Roman political system came with a real whimper. In many ways, it's reminiscent of the collapse of the Western Roman Empire, where the will to fight just ebbed away and barbarian invaders were offered the chance to take over the state. In the end, the only epic part of the story is the scale of its tragedy. Part of what makes the fall of the city feel so regrettable is that the Latins did nothing with it they did not establish a new civilization, as the Ottomans would. Instead, they let the husk of Constantinople rot for half a century, ruling as they did in Outramir, at a distance, their administration always understaffed and underfunded. Ultimately, I don't think anyone really benefited from the Fourth Crusade. In the long term... The Venetians did grow significantly in power and influence, but in the short term they found that by destroying the Byzantine state they had eliminated their best customer. Profits plunged, and it took decades before they were back to the level they had enjoyed in Manuel's day. The Latin leadership were all tainted by the shameful act of sacking a Christian city. They each wrote letters, and some wrote entire histories, trying to justify their behaviour. None of them would ever make it to Jerusalem, and most were dead within a few years. The rank-and-file pilgrims ended up complaining bitterly about the whole affair. Most of them failed to reach the Holy Land, and some were forced to stay in Constantinople against their will. Many felt that their leaders kept the riches of the city to themselves and failed to live up to the promises they'd made. The Pope was appalled that his instructions had been ignored. Then he became excited when letters arrived announcing the union of churches and that the Roman Empire was back in the fold. But as the decades passed, Innocent began to realise that the whole thing had been a huge mistake. Men were now staying in the Byzantine world instead of going to Jerusalem to help Utramir. And eventually he concluded that trying to force the Orthodox to become Catholics was a bad idea. Again, there's something darkly comic about that realisation coming only after Byzantium had been gutted. In fact, the Fourth Crusade killed any possibility of church union. The Orthodox would never ever trust the Latins again. And really, it killed the chance of capturing Egypt, too. Though further attempts on the Nile were made, they lacked the numbers necessary to succeed. The Fourth Crusade had somewhat discredited crusading itself. Who would volunteer for such a mission after hearing how the course of this journey to Jerusalem had been perverted? I'm sure you will have many questions, so please do send them in to thehistoryofbyzantium at gmail.com or on Patreon or Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or at the website. Over the next couple of episodes we'll talk more about the sack, what was lost and the experience of this tragedy. Then we'll see what direction your questions take us. As sad an episode as this is, we have to keep some sense of perspective. We have watched on and perhaps cheered as the Romans have sacked city after city after city across the past two millennia. We can't now turn around and claim that they all deserve to burn, but Constantinople did not. All cities fall eventually. If you're looking for some kind of positive note to end on, then I think it's that Byzantium would survive this disaster. Already centers of resistance were being established in Europe and Asia, and plans to retake Constantinople will begin to form. We have sat through the destruction of a dozen other states during the course of this podcast. The Vandals, the Ostrogoths, the Sassanids, the various Caliphates, the Paulicians, the Rus kingdoms, the Avar Khaganate, the Khazars, the Pechenegs, and so on, all of whom faded away or were replaced, and yet the Romans go on and on and on. So let's grit our teeth and bear this dark chapter, knowing that there are still good times to come.